On this episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with Dr. Gerald Bray about Anglicanism. So this is part of our new series we're doing on different faith traditions, learning directly from those within them. And we hope to promote a strong spirit of charity and curiosity within each interview that leads us to a better understanding. Now we're going to cover topics like what is Anglicanism, what are its core tenets and its main identity markers, how is it connected to the great tradition of the church, but also how is it unique and different from other segments of Christianity, what areas of Anglicanism might be most susceptible to critique, or areas that Dr. Bray receives the most questions about from non-Anglicans, and in, in matters of doctrine, you know, what authority does scripture, creed, church have, and, and all sorts of questions like that. As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, you can hit us up Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. I'm one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak. And I'm your co-host, Brandon Askew. And we're a podcast that's devoted to serious thinking for a serious church, and we want to think with particular virtues in mind. Those are charity, curiosity, critical thinking, cheerful confessionalism. If you've been listening for a long time, you know that we try to prioritize these things because we want to develop an intellectual culture that prizes, promotes these things because we think those are Christian virtues. If you're new to the show, we that's something we try to do across the board, whether it's on our podcast interviews, whether it's on our online presence and everything. We don't always succeed, but that's what we're seeking and trying to encourage and promote. Now, for this particular episode, I'm, I'm really excited to introduce you all to Dr. Gerald Bray, and we're going to be talking about Anglicanism, and he's got a fabulous new book uh, with Lexham Press on Anglicanism. So if you're interested, you want to understand more, I'm going to tell you, go get the book. It's affordably priced. It's got a beautiful cover. Um, it's everything you could want to understand what's going on there. And this is going to be part of, if you're listening, part of our denominational series. So part of the goal of this series has been uh, for us, me and Brandon are Baptists, is to to hear from others who are in other Christian traditions, hey, w- what's good, what's true, what's beautiful about your own tradition, and maybe what are the areas that uh, people o- often find questions about. Give us some answers on that and explain those sort of things. So I think it's really fun. Uh, we've had a good time, and I think this is going to continue that great time. So before we get jump in, Dr. Bray, can you give us a little bit of bio about you know what you're doing now, uh, what position you hold, and then what is it that drew you to Anglicanism? Were, were, did you, were you raised in an Anglican church, or was this something you converted to later in life? <laughs> right. Well, uh, at the moment, um, I suppose I'm technically retired, uh, but I'm the uh, research professor of divinity at Beeson Divinity School in Birmingham, Alabama. And I'm also research director for something called the Latimer Trust, uh, which is based in London, which is an Anglican uh, organization. Um, I live about half the year in Alabama and the other half in Cambridge in England. So I commute back and forth. Um, I've been an Anglican in, in some ways uh, most of my life. Um, uh, I, my father, I come from an Anglican family. Um, uh, and I was brought up partly in the Anglican, partly in Presbyterian church, uh, because my mother was Presbyterian. So we, we kind of had a bit of both. Um, but, uh, I became a Christian myself, uh, in high school, um, basically through in- interdenominational, um, uh, evangelistic, uh, work in school. 
Um, and that's re really been my spiritual home, or it was my spiritual home, um, you know, through my high school and college years. Um, and I, I got settled in, in the Anglican Church really uh, when I was uh, doing postgraduate work, um, you know, in terms of being a regular church member and so on, um, and uh, carried on from there. But I wouldn't say I was converted to Anglicanism or anything like that. Well, Dr. Bray, if you don't mind, let's maybe start with kind of a 30,000-foot view of, of Anglicanism. Um, tell us, maybe historically speaking, Anglicanism as we know it today, you know, where can we trace that to? What are kind of its its beginnings of, of how we recognize it today? And then maybe single out, um, you know, any core tenets that you think the listeners would need to to know to be able to identify Anglicanism. Well, Anglicanism as we know it today um, is basically a 19th century invention um, uh, for various reasons. I mean, uh, partly because there was a renewal of interest in um, what you might broadly call Catholic Christianity, uh, pre-Reformation Christianity um, at that time. Partly also there was a, a, a great expansion um, uh, of, of what had been the Church of England, uh, more or less, uh, you know, into other parts of the world. And, um, of course, as that happened, and as uh, daughter churches, particularly in the United States, for example, um, became independent and, you know, more or less broke away um, from the mother country, uh some some definition, some kind of a you know way of understanding this um, uh, had to be worked out, uh, and so that is really what happened um, in the nineteenth century, and it was uh, from about the eighteen thirties, eighteen forties that the word Anglican, as we understand it now, um, came into being. Now, of course, the people who uh, who did this, who, who uh, you know, started talking like that, um, didn't believe that they were inventing anything new. I mean, to them, they were going back to the, you know, the very origins um, uh, of what would be the Church of England, I suppose, um, uh, you know, you'd, you'd, you'd have to say. And, um, and basically, they rewrote the, the history. Um, uh, you know, they tried to downplay the Reformation, for example, um, and uh, de-Protestantize the church as much as they could, um, uh, you know, at that time. And, uh, of course, the result is that there are some people today who call themselves Anglican, um, who would follow that that line? Um, uh, I mean, we would call them Anglo-Catholics, probably, but um, people, you know, who who reject the Reformation, reject Protestantism, and so on. But of course, uh, historically, that's that's not correct. Um, uh, you know, there was a Reformation, and uh, the Church of England did, in fact, break with Rome. Um, and and of course, the first people who will tell you this are Roman Catholics. I mean, they're you know they 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 see it in a different way um so you have to look at it like that um characteristics well um i suppose you would have to say uh, the the modern anglican world the anglican churches um, all have bishops they're they're episcopal in structure and uh, in that way it look quite similar say to the roman catholic church but 
um, but they're not uh, in another way. Um, I mean, first of all, the the spiritual discipline um, of the clergy is completely different. Um, uh, I mean, Anglican clergy marry, bishops marry, um, and so on, and uh, so you have a you know a, a different feel, a different ethos there. Um, but nevertheless, to the outsider, that would be a, something that would immediately strike them. Um, also, the the fact that there is set liturgy uh, in the Book of Common Prayer, um, and this again is is problematic in a way because most people who talk about this. Uh, We'll talk about the Book of Common Prayer as if it's a single book, um, whereas in fact, of course, it's many books, um, uh, both historically and, uh, and and in the contemporary Anglican world, because each church has its own. Um, and although they, there's a family resemblance between them, so that you can usually go from one to the other, uh, you know, without too much. Uh, difficulty um, nevertheless they're not the same and and uh, each national church each local church uh, writes its own prayer book um, and of course they can do all sorts of things with that um, and often do um, another characteristic though which differentiates Anglicans from say Roman Catholics um, is that in the Anglican world lay people uh, play an important part. Um, I mean, all synods, forms of church government, and so on. Um, uh, you know, the lay people ha- have a, have a, a strong voice. It's not cl- it's not clergy dominated um, in the way that the Roman Catholic Church is. Um, it's also uh, characterized, I suppose, by uh, a great breadth of uh, of view. I mean. Uh, most Anglican churches have all kinds of different people in them, and um, the church is very, uh, very careful uh, about the way it defines its its doctrines and so on, or uh, the way it uh, disciplines people, because it tries to keep as many uh, different strands within the within the church as possible. Now. That doesn't always work, uh, of course, and, uh, you know, there are exceptions that can be made to this. But um, put it like this, I think uh, it's much harder to pin down a typical Anglican um, than, say, a typical Baptist or a typical Presbyterian or something like that, Um, uh, you know, because there isn't the same sort of core of uh, defined uh, beliefs and practices um, that would have to be uh, applied to everybody. Um, I mean, if you take, for example, baptism, um, not all Anglicans uh, believe in infant baptism. Um, uh, you know, you would have to practice it if you are an Anglican clergyman, for example. I mean, somebody comes along and wants their baby baptized. Um, the church would uh, have to do that because that's part of the... the uh, the structure, part of the doctrine. But if you don't want that, they're not going to pursue you and, and insist that you, you, know, you have to have this um, uh, done or, or leave the church somehow. Um, and, and there are plenty of people who, on that subject, are, are Baptists, really. Um, 
you know, but but they belong to the Anglican Church because, uh, well, that's what they belong to. And, um, uh, <laughs> you know, it's not an issue, shall we say. It's not something that uh, would be regarded as church dividing. Um, and, and you can go on like that. I mean, um, you, you couldn't say, for example, that um, Anglicans hold to a particular view of the millennium. Uh, you know, they're not pre-millenarian or post-millenarian or, or whatever, and they could be anything um, as far as that goes. It's generally a subject that, that doesn't come up very much. Um, and so, you know, once you get to the, that kind of uh, particular uh, thing, um, it's very hard to pin Anglicans down. Um, you know, you can always find some somebody somewhere um, who who agrees with you, whatever it is you th- you, you think. Um, uh, you know, there's quite a breadth there. That, that's fascinating. So, along with that, I guess maybe I have a twofold question, and we've been talking about it a little bit, but I, I want to get some clarity. So, on one side, what are the things that, for certain? If you're an Anglican, you have common in common with with everybody else. Is there a core set? So say, just is it just the Apostles' Creed? Those sorts of things that that's our core central dogmatic agreement. Um, and then on the flip side, what is it that you think is overly unique when it comes to Anglicanism compared to other segments of the Christian tradition? Is it the the breadth of belief that's a, that there is to be had, or or what does that look like? Well, I think, of course, there's, a, there's an enormous amount of common doctrine. Um, uh, I would say, for example, that um, uh, the Bible is very central. Um, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's central to our prayer book, central to our worship. Um, uh, so, and that, of course, is shared among all Christians. There's no Anglican tradition of biblical interpretation that would be dramatically different from anybody else's. So, uh, you know, we're quite ecumenical in, in, in that respect. Um, then um, uh, the creeds, of course, of the early church, that would be something that we share with other people. Um, we, we share hymnody. Uh, you know, we sing the same hymns as, 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 as everybody else. Uh, we haven't really got our own tradition. We, we produce hymns, but, uh, you know, they're, they're shared across the board. Um, uh, quite a lot of things. Um, in in re- recent years, uh, we have e- ecumenical um, uh, liturgies uh, so that, you know, the worship of the church that, that you would experience today uh, if you walked into an Anglican church, it might take a while before you realized it wasn't Lutheran or Presbyterian or even Catholic, um, uh, you know, because they're reading the same texts, they're uh, praying the same prayers. Um, uh, there's a lot of convergence like that. Uh, so although there's a great deal of variety, um, you know, in, in different Anglican churches, uh, there's also that uh, um uh, you know that similarity this next question is a little more subjective and, and part of what we wanted to do in this series is you know we wanted to talk to representatives from um, other traditions outside of the Baptist tradition and not only to get the history correct and the doctrine correct but we also wanted to to learn from from a, an Anglican or an Eastern Orthodox or Roman Catholic or a Lutheran what makes that particular tradition beautiful to that person so what what makes Anglicanism beautiful to you 
well, I think the balance uh, that you you have um, scripture is very much at the heart, and uh, it's organized in a way that you know you have to cover the whole thing. Um, there's a there's a sort of uh, pattern of readings, lectionary, which takes you through the whole Bible. Um, we read the Psalms once a month, uh, you know, right the way through. Uh, so that's uh, grounded. Um, we have a disciplined prayer life. Um, I mean, uh, I, as a, as a clergyman, for example, am bound to pray morning and evening every day, um, uh, you know, according to the liturgy of the church. And over time, this, um, uh, this gives you a foundation. I mean, um, uh, it's spiritual food. Now, I mean, just as physical food isn't always exciting on every day, um, <laughs> you know, it's, it, it, it will vary from one uh, day to the next. Uh, and you don't always get up from dinner, you know, th- thinking you've had a wonderful meal. Um, so, you know, the, this, with the spiritual discipline, there'll be days when you feel dry, days when it, it doesn't seem to register as much as it would in other times. Um, but, but like any kind of exercise, um, uh, you know, it, it's building up over the longer term. Uh, and you see the benefits. Um, uh, you know, you get a stability and uh, uh, that, that um, withstands, uh, you know, all kinds of pressures and so on. Um, and I find this. I mean, I find over years that um, if I miss, if I, if, if, if I miss my daily devotions, um, uh, it's like missing meals. You know, you, you, you notice. Um, and, and so that, that's very important. And I think, um, you know, for young, young people, of course, get very enthusiastic about things, um, and flip from one thing to another. But that's, that's what young people are like. Um, no, it's fair enough. But, um, you know, as you go on in life and get older, um, uh, the, the sort of steady, uh, you know, foundation becomes, uh, becomes more, more important. And it's what lasts, um, over time. So, uh, so that's very good. Also, I think the, the thing about Anglicanism, which is a little bit odd, I suppose, in a way, is that because it's so broad and, and it has so many different things, Anglicans can go almost anywhere in the Christian world. And, and get a warm welcome. Uh, you know, I can go into a Baptist church and be welcome um, because people have heard of John Stott or Jim Packer or somebody like that. Uh, but I can go into an Eastern Orthodox church and get an equally warm welcome, um, you know, because we have liturgy and we have uh, tradition and so on, and so they recognize that. Um, I mean, it, it may seem a little incongruous because it's different aspects of Anglicanism that will appeal, um, uh, but it but it does. And uh, I think if you look over the last uh, hundred years or so, um, I mean, two of the the, the most uh, popular books uh, in the Christian world that have been written, um, you know, about basic Christianity. Um, you have C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity. And John Stott's basic Christianity, sort of introductions, and um, they go all over the place. All kinds of people read them, um, and and yet the authors in both cases are Anglican. Um, and and the interesting thing is, people often don't realize that. 
you know, all, all sorts of people claim C.S. Lewis for themselves, um, failing to recognize who the real C.S. Lewis was. And John Stott, similarly. Yeah, you, you mentioned some of the earlier, the different strands within Anglicanism, and, and we've sort of been talking about it just now. Um, so in the book, you, you talk about, you know, low church Anglicans, evangelicals, Anglo-Catholics, uh, broad church, liberals. Mm-hmm. I may, Maybe you mm-hmm. could um, just pick a, two or three of those and uh, maybe just give us a brief summary of how to understand, you know, what this particular strand is, and then maybe any figures that are associated with that particular strand that the listeners might be familiar with. Um, well, yes, I, I, I don't really know who your listeners are entirely, so it's hard to say what they'd be familiar with. But, um, I mean, if we take the evangelical wing of the church, for example, um, I mean, you have people, I've already mentioned John Stott. Um, there's Jim Packer, J.I. Packer, uh, who is well known in, in, in certain circles, uh, you know, conservative evangelical circles. Um, you get people like Tom Wright, N.T. Wright, uh, you know, biblical scholar and theologian, um, Alistair McGrath, uh, and, and another person like that. Um, I mean, these people are quite well known, um, in theological circles. Um, and they would all be, un, you know, more or less evangelical in, 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 in outlook and orientation. Um, and the evangelical wing of the of the Anglican Church is pr- probably at the moment um, the strongest. Uh, if you had to take one, you know, particular strand, um, then at the other, the opposite end, uh, Anglo-Catholics, um, you have people. Uh, they're probably not so well known to the average person. Um, but for example, if you if were wanting to study the, the creeds of the early church. Uh, I mean, the best uh, volume for that is a book called Early Christian Creeds, um, written by J.N.D. Kelly, um, uh, who was a leading Anglo-Catholic uh, person. Um, a lot of uh, the study of liturgy, uh, again, uh, a fairly rarefied interest, but for those who are interested in it, um, uh, a high proportion of the of, of the material written about it is written by Anglicans. Um, a man called Gregory Dix, for instance, wrote a book called The Shape of the Liturgy back in the 1940s, which um, has had an, an, an enormous impact um, on uh, the renewal of worship in, in, in many churches, not just in the Anglican Church. But um, if you go to Lutheran or Presbyterian or, or Catholic Church uh, today and notice the similarities in liturgy, a lot of it goes back to the work that he did, uh, even though most people wouldn't realize that. Um, C.S. Lewis, of course, represents the broad church. Um, uh, you know, some people seem to think he was evangelical, but he wasn't. Uh, other people think he was Anglo-Catholic, but he wasn't. Um, uh, but, you know, he's very popular in, in, in that way. Uh, and then you get quite a lot of people who um, are, I don't know what you would call them, but um, writers, for instance. I mean, people like Jan Caron, people like um, 
uh, Susan Howitch, people like P.D. James, the, the crime writer. Um, you know, there seem to be a, a lot of women um, novelists and so on who, um, you know, are hard to classify. Uh, I mean, I suppose they're, they're broad church Anglicans in a way. Um, uh, but, you know, they're, they're, and they write on spiritual themes. Uh, so there, there's them. Um, and then you get the radicals like uh, Bishop, the late Bishop Spong and um, uh, people like that, um, uh, you know, who, who make headlines because they're busily denying this and that. Um, and, um, you know, they're, they're, they're a different breed altogether again. So, um, you know, there are people of that sort. Um uh, and then there are, uh, say, lots of other people that you, you just don't know where to put them sometimes, like, um, you know, George Bush, for instance. Uh, you, you know, where does he fit? Uh, somewhere. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it's hard to it, it's hard to say. You see what I mean? Um, because uh, individuals can float uh, around. Um, uh, they're not necessarily tied to one particular uh, group. And, and there's a lot of cross-fertilization. Um, see, that's another thing. Anglicans are exposed uh, to uh, to different uh, theological impulses, um, whether they want to be or not. Um, and sometimes they react strongly against them, and sometimes they, uh, they absorb them. Uh, you know, they go back and forth. Um, in the charismatic world, uh, you may know about the Alpha Course, um, which started in London, uh, Holy Trinity Brompton, and is now spread around the world. It's adopted by many churches uh, as a, a form of uh, evangelism. Um, again, you know, Anglican inspiration, but but not really typically not typically Anglican or exclusively Anglican. And I think that's something that um, needs to be said too. That. Um, Anglicanism at its best um, tries to serve the whole church without uh, without without wearing a denominational label. Um, uh, you know, I'm I'm not out to make people Anglican. Um, I'm uh, out to make people better Christians. And uh, you know, if, if being a better Baptist is the way you're going to be a better Christian, well, well, fine. Um, you know, quite quite happy to accept that, or uh, and not worry about you know these other things. Um, so I think we do have a um, you know a, an, an ability, shall we say, to relate to this these people and relate to uh, you know a wide range of uh, of different viewpoints. Um, but within the church, the, you 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 get all these tendencies. Now, you know, I I grew up knowing next to nothing about Anglicanism. So I don't even know where the most, right. the closest local Anglican church or parish was to where I lived. And it was only, I guess, really after mm -hmm. college that I started to figure out um, more about them, understanding more of the details. But one thing I did know, I mean, vaguely was that there was a sense of their churches look a lot better than the churches that I attend. So the churches that I attend kind of like, you know, four concrete walls put up. Uh, whereas most Anglican Right. Churches seem to have a, a greater sense of beauty or care for those sort of things. Is that something that is woven throughout Anglicanism, a care for beautiful architecture and those sorts of things? Is there a reason for that? Well, I, yes. I mean, um, there certainly is a tendency in that direction. I don't know. It's very hard to say. 
Um, I mean, on the one hand, uh, of course, uh, at the time of the Reformation, you know, the, when the church broke with, with Rome, it inherited all the medieval buildings, um, cathedrals and so on. So, you know, they, they were stuck with them, whether they wanted them or not. Um, and uh, so I suppose you could say that's part of the original inheritance. Um, and certainly there is uh, a sense of the importance of reverence in worship, uh, a reluctance to to um, have multi-purpose sanctuaries, you know, push the, the 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 furniture aside, and you know we'll, we'll turn the church into a dance floor or something. Um, I mean, this uh, you know th- this wouldn't go down very well in in, in most Anglican circles. Um, but on the other hand. Um, it's very hard. It really is very hard to say because uh, if you get places where new new churches are starting up, you know, people are planting church planting. Um, it, it wouldn't look very different, probably, from say Baptists or anything else initially. Um, but probably over the longer term, there would be a, a desire to, um, uh, you know, to have a specific place of worship. Um, uh, that uh, you know was reserved for that purpose, and um, and certainly a sense of of reverence and um, you know something special uh, in in that way, um, and of course uh, you know you get uh, churches which have stained glass windows and um, uh, and and that kind of thing, although that's that tends to be um, the decision of a local congregation. Um, people in the local congregation want this, and if you go into the average Anglican church, you'll often find that um, you know the stained glass has been given by somebody in the congregation in memory of um, you know their parents or something like this. I mean, it's a sort of memorial thing, um, and, and so you, you'll get you'll get a lot of that that uh, going on. Um, uh, but yes, I mean, uh, you know, there, there, there's definitely a tendency in that direction, um, uh, and a sense that that it, that it matters. Something that I wasn't familiar with until I was reading through your book is um, the the Anglican Communion and how there are some churches inside of it and some some outside. So when I think Anglican uh, here in the states, I think ACNA. But I guess from reading your book, they're actually not part of the Anglican Communion. So can you help us understand that distinction of, of being in and out of that communion? Yes. Well, in, see, this is, this is part of the inheritance, if you like, of, um, uh, you know, from the, before the Reformation, um, that the, the original Anglican Church, if you want to call it that, um, was the Church of England. And it was the National Church of England, and everybody who lived in England was supposed to be a member of it. Um, and, and that was it. It didn't go outside of England. Um, so that when, for example, the colonists came to America in the 17th century and colonized Virginia and places like that, they brought the Church of England with them uh, and set it up in, in the colonies. But the status of, the, uh, of, of these churches was never very clear. Um, uh, you, you know, there wasn't an, an independent 
Anglican or Episcopal Church in America until after independence. Um, before that, I mean, uh, you know, if you were in, in Virginia, for example, uh, and you wanted to become a, a clergyman in the church, you had to go to England in order to train and be ordained in England and then sent back to the colonies. Um, you know, that's the way it worked um, because nobody... Um, I, I don't know what to, what to say, really. Nobody had the imagination, I suppose, to to go any further than that. Um, but then, uh, as as independent national churches were established, um, the same sort of territorial principle um, was applied, so that in the United States, for example, um, there would be one church which called itself the Protestant Episcopal Church of, uh, of, the, of the United States, and that was, you know, the recognized Anglican Church. Um, and that would be, the same would be true in other parts of the world too. Um, but then, uh, of course, in the late 19th century, beginning in the late 19th century, theological differences um, uh, within these churches um, uh, you know, caused splits, caused, caused breakaways. So that in the U.S., for instance, you had the development of the Reformed Episcopal Church, which broke away from the mainline Episcopal Church. And it's a curious situation because the rest of the Anglican world recognizes the legitimacy of their ordinations. So that if you were ordained in, in the Reformed Episcopal Church, or become a bishop in the Reformed Episcopal Church, the the rest of the Anglican world will 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 accept that, will recognize that, but they're not in communion um, uh, with the with the Church of England, with the See of Canterbury, as use its official uh, the official term, um, because they're a breakaway group, um, uh, you know, and. Uh, of course, in more recent times, um, in the past generation, this has become a major uh, a major phenomenon, shall we say? Um, you know, the Anglican Church in North America uh, has broken away from uh, the Episcopal Church and also from the Anglican Church of Canada because they're, they're combined together, and uh, and nobody really knows what to do about this um, uh, because. Uh, you know, people in the ACNA are are accepted and recognized uh, as as uh, you know Anglicans uh, individually, but the church as a whole, uh, as a denomination, is not. Um, and <laughs> the basic problem is, I suppose, geographical, territorial. Um, you know, because. They're not supposed to do this. They're not, you're not supposed to have two Anglican churches in the same uh, geographical area. Um, but that gets complicated too because uh, in some places like continental Europe, where there, where there was never uh, an Anglican church traditionally, um, you have the Church of England, which has established chaplaincies for, for expatriate people, you know, British people who go and live in France or somewhere like that. And the, the American Episcopal Church, the, 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 which has done the same thing um, for Americans who, who, who go there. So if you go to Paris, for example, um, you know, there's an American Episcopal Church and then there are uh, Church of England churches, which are, are in communion with each other uh, because of their parent bodies. Um, 
but which operate independently on the ground, um, uh, you know, and have, have relatively little to do with each other. So that's an anomaly, really. Um, and then you get um, other things. You see, you, for example, uh, in Spain and Portugal, um, there are uh, people who broke away from the Catholic Church in the 19th century um, and who wanted to join the Anglican Church, recognized as Anglicans. And they have been recognized as Anglicans, uh, you know, in recent years. Um, but they're kind, again, kind of anomalous because they're not, they're not English, you know, we're, uh, they have, they haven't got the same sort of tradition. Um, uh, and there are English speaking churches in Spain and Portugal, which belong to the Church of England and which function in English. So there's an overlapping thing there. So there are all sorts of different, um, uh, uh, you know, different combinations, um, which are extremely hard to pin down. Uh, if you go somewhere else, like New Zealand, for example, uh, the Anglican Church in New Zealand has has divided. Uh, split would be the wrong word, but it's um, it's kind of broken down into three different groups: uh, one for white people, one for the Maori, who are the native New Zealanders, and one for the Polynesians, people from Samoa and places like that. Um, uh, you know, who represent the the Pacific Islanders. Um, and they function independently under an umbrella organization, which, you know, is the Anglican Church of, uh, of New Zealand. So that's a, that's a completely different model. Um, and, uh, but it would be impossible to imagine that, in, say, in the United States, because would you have one church for white? I mean, it would basically be having one church for white people another church for black people, another church, for, say, for Hispanics or whatever. Um, and in the American context, of course, that would that just wouldn't be acceptable. So, um, you know, what do you do? Um, it, 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 this is the way it is. Um, and sometimes it gets re it's recognized and sometimes it's not. So maybe i'm curious talk to me a little bit more about the polity structure so i think probably 65 75% of our listeners are baptists or or presbyterians mm -hmm. and they're more of a i think flat sort of structure so i guess presbyterian reformed would have a little bit more hierarchy but when it comes to anglicanism how is how are the churches supposed to be interrelated and how does that work up to archbishops and those sort of things right well, each national church will have its internal organization, um, which basically is uh, you have groups of parishes and groups of individual congregations um, joined together in a diocese, uh, which will be presided over by a bishop. Um, and then uh, these bishops will be, will, will be joined together. The diocese will be joined together into provinces. Um, and depending on the country or the place where you are, um, uh, you know, uh, th there could be one province to cover the entire country, like Scotland, for example, um, or several provinces, like the United States, where there are nine, um, you know, in the Episcopal Church. Now, normally, the head of the province, the, the bishop who, who is the presiding bishop of the province, will be the archbishop. 
um, and will be consecrated as such. Um, and so you have the Archbishop of Canterbury, the Archbishop of York in England, because there are two provinces. But in the United States, because at the time of independence, there was a, a great reaction against hierarchy and against no, you know the nobility and all that sort of thing, um, they didn't want archbishops. Um, so in the, the United, the Episcopal Church in the U.S. doesn't have archbishops. It has a presiding bishop who is elected, I think, for nine years, uh, you know, something like that. And then they have to, uh, to, to retire. Um, but, but they're just like a Presbyterian moderator or something. I mean, they, you know, they're, they're, they're not, um, more important than any other bishop. Um, uh, and, and that's a sort of, peculiarity of the American Episcopal Church. Uh, but what has been interesting is that with ACNA, of course, splitting off from the Episcopal Church, the head of the ACNA is an archbishop. <laughs> they've, they've gone back to that to that title, which is more common in the Anglican world generally, um, uh, you know. Um, so in, in this respect, you could say the ACNA um, is is more connected is more like the wider Anglican Church uh, in other countries um, than the Episcopal churches. So, on this podcast, we uh, we we like to talk about confessions of faith, and you know we uh, we admire the Second London Baptist Confession uh, on this podcast. But yes. I suppose I'd be doing a we'd be doing a terrible job of interviewing an Anglican if we didn't ask about the thirty nine Articles. So maybe uh, yes. just give us. Um, a little bit of the history of of the thirty nine articles, how it came to be, and then uh, maybe a little bit about what the role um, of the thirty nine articles is in the Anglican Church today. Right. Well, the thirty nine articles uh, were a state a statement of faith produced uh, in the Church of England after the break with Rome, um, because it was necessary at that time to uh, establish what the Church actually believed, um, and you can basically break them down into four uh, different groups. Um, the first uh, group would be what we call the Catholic articles, the universal articles, uh, you know, God, the Trinity, the Bible, this sort of thing that would be shared by all Christians. Um, that's, the, that's the beginning. Then the second uh, group, the, the main body of the articles, um, are the reformed articles. That is, you know, what, what makes the Church of England a reformed church? And, uh, the first group of these would be, um, the, the way of salvation, uh, dealing with justification, sanctification, those things. The second one would be church ministry and sacraments, um, uh, you know, those doctrines. And they are, broadly speaking, in line with, you know, Presbyterians or, or whatever. I mean, uh, you know, similar. Um, then uh, you have what we call the specifically Anglican articles, uh, which are few, but which deal with the internal government of the Church of England. Uh, and that would cover um, the bishops, priests, and deacons. It covers, um, uh, you know, the way the, the, the Church is related to the state and so on. And then uh, tagged on at the end, there are a couple of miscellaneous articles um, which don't really fit anywhere else. Um, one of them is uh, affirming the, the, the right of people to have private property. 
Uh, and the other one is affirming the legitimacy of oath taking so that, uh, you know, if you, you're called up uh, to give witness in a court of law, um, you can swear on the Bible and that's okay. Um, and at the time, I mean, this may be of interest to you, both of those articles uh, were directed against the Anabaptists, um, you know, who were contesting this kind of thing at that time. Um, of course, modern Baptists would agree, you know, uh, there the, the wouldn't be the same sort of difference. And those were the articles that they got frozen, really, for political reasons. Uh, it became more difficult to to change them. Um, and in the 17th century, when the Puritans movement, the Puritan movement was at its height, um, there was, of course, a, uh, an attempt to compose a, a confession of faith for, for everybody, um, which is the, the Westminster Confession. Uh, and the Westminster Confession, although nowadays people think of it as a Presbyterian confession, um, was in fact a revision of the 39 Articles. That's how it started off. Um, and something like the Second London Confession of 1689 is basically an adaptation of the Westminster Confession to Baptist concerns. So there is there is a connection there, um, you know, a historical connection which is is not really properly understood. Um, and uh, the way that it's set out, fairly similarly. I mean, you start at the beginning um, with affirmations that. Uh, I mean, if you take the Second London Confession, for instance, the first half probably would be identical to what Anglicans would say. Um, and then it's only as you get towards the end and questions of, you know, church government and things, sacraments and so on, that the differences begin to appear. Now, the role that the articles occupy in the church t- today, well, of course, this is highly contested. Um some Anglicans would say they don't they don't matter. Um, uh, you you know uh, they can be disposed of, um, but but most Anglicans and not just I mean evangelical Anglicans insist on them. I mean they they they're the great defenders of the Articles, um, but the broad church Anglican most broad church Anglicans accept them too. So that for example you will have the Episcopal Church uh, in the U.S. prints the 39 Articles in its prayer book. Um, ACNA prints the 39 Articles in its prayer book. So they're there. Um, How many people read them? How many people pay much attention to them? Um, That's a whole other thing. Um, You know, it's hard to say. But one of the aims of my little book on Anglicanism is to point out... um, that you really can't understand Anglicanism unless you understand the Articles, because that's that's the clearest expression of what Anglicanism really is. Um, and so, in a sense, it's, it could be said it's it's really a kind of mini commentary on the Articles um, is what you end up with. Um, so, it, you know, we're trying to sort of give the Articles a greater prominence um, within the Anglican world today. Um, uh, which they, they've never lost on paper. You know, they're, they're there on paper, 
uh, but they tend to be ignored in practice. Yeah, I, I really appreciate it. I, I just read your book this week, and um, you know, I learned a lot about the history of Anglicanism, uh, mm-hmm. and I, I did appreciate you know the second half of the book is basically you know an exposition of the Thirty Nine Articles itself. Um, so yes. as we um, as we wrap up here, I, I, we want to try to direct the listeners to some helpful resources. So, number one, we we do want to direct you guys to. Um, Dr. Bray's book, Anglicanism, A Reformed Catholic Tradition. This is a new book, 2021 release, uh, Lexham Press. But Dr. Bray, do you have any other, uh, maybe some introductory books that you know of, or maybe some more advanced books or or authors or theologians that you think would be helpful um, to point people toward? Yes. uh, Anyone interested in the prayer book and the history of the prayer book and, and, and the services and so on, um, the Latimer Trust, um, which has a website uh, you can look at, um, has a series called Anglican Foundations, uh, and this goes through baptism, the Lord's Supper, um, you know, marriage services, burial services, all things like that. And they're little booklets that you you, you can buy, not very expensive. Um, I mean, we're talking about eight dollars, ten dollars, something like this, you know, on a particular topic. And you can order them online and get them delivered, uh, you know, within a week or two. And I would certainly recommend that, um, uh, you know, as a very good resource to go to um, for this kind of thing. Um, uh, and and that's probably for the average person. I mean, you know, that's probably your best bet. Then. Um, there are, of course, other uh, other things when you you know you get uh, into greater detail. Um, there's something called the Alcuin Club. Alcuin was a uh, a man who actually he was an Englishman who, who who worked at the court of Charlemagne in 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 the ninth eighth and ninth centuries. Um, but this Alcuin Club, which has been established, which produces works on, uh, you know, Anglican liturgy and so on. Um, and again, they have a website and you can get um, uh, all kinds of things from them, um, including, you know, short booklets on different aspects of, of the church. You just have to run through them and see what you, you know, what appeals to you. Um, and they cover all kinds of things like inclusive language and, you know, things like that. Um, uh, and the Latimer Trust again publishes on things like same-sex marriage. I mean, they keep up to date with the uh, with the controversies going on in the church at the moment. Um, so those would be the places I would go. Uh, you know, in the first uh, instance, um, uh, to find uh, resources for this uh, that are affordable um, and and easily obtainable. That's great. Well, Dr. Bray, this has been really educational and really helpful. So I appreciate you, number one, coming on and talking to us about these things. And number two, for those who are listening, again, I commend you to go check out Dr. Bray's book. Um, So check out these other resources, but also don't forget his book. Um, I think both me and Brandon have it and read it this week. And it's, I think it's fantastic. It's a nice summary. It's not overly long to where you feel like you're going to get lost and have to read 500 pages to get there. So it's, it's concise. It's clear. It's well done. So, Dr. Bray, thanks for writing it, and thanks for joining us. And everybody who's been listening, uh, we also commend all of Dr. Bray's other books. I know he's. I just finished his uh, short little book with Crossway on the divine attributes. It's it's a fabulous book. One of those books that you can really take your church members through. 
again, you know, you're talking 100, 150 pages. I can't remember the exact number, but it, it's short. It's concise. It's going to give you an overview of all all the important topics. And it's one of the. It's just. It's. I think it's a great resource. So I commend his resources to you. I think they they you would find them all beneficial, and I know I have anyway. So thanks for everybody tuning in to the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet, and we'll talk to you guys soon.